KAOS 89.3 Olympia. Hi, low profile audience. We're back again with Mike Coleman for part two of his interview with Allison O'Donnell. And uh, Mike, if you want to talk a little bit more about how this interview went for you this was your first time conducting one right yeah it was the first time conducting one on my own did you know much of her music beyond mellow candle before you went into researching no um i knew very little i was you know i i've been listening to the mellow candle swaddling songs record which kind of stands in the universe as this you know sparkling star it's it's quite a cult um you know favorite and has been for many many years um yeah i didn't know much about allison's other output you know other other recordings prior to our interview but i did a bunch of research before i spoke with her she's an interesting person a real interesting figure and um yeah so it was it was a real treat it sure was um, it's such a such a fun conversation to listen to. So uh, I think we're gonna pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Uh, here is Allison O'Donnell, part two. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, your moving to South Africa and what that was all about, um, and the beginning of of how Flipper the Gibbet began and uh, whist- the record Whistling Jigs to the Moon was recorded. Uh, who was in that group and so on? That record, by the way, was recorded in 1977. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 78. Uh, we recorded in 77. Yeah, released in 78 and reissued uh, uh, some years ago in Gerson. Uh, in Spain, um, as a vinyl and a CD, you know. I'm ordering say, that it's one. It's a by collector's the way. item as well. It's very niche in South Africa. I mean, it was the folk scene there is tiny. I climbed up to your house and tapped upon your window, but all I saw within your rooms were paintings of the sea and walls. You were sort of stars, maybe, in South Africa with the group, right? Well, we, we, we were also kind of alternative, because we didn't, we, we, we did gigs there and um, house parties and things like that, but we <sighs> did it a, a lot for the expat community, and I really actually, I really try and avoid them in, in countries that I'm living in. I avoided them in Belgium, but you kind of, South Africa, you get sucked into it, because I was there during the time of apartheid, and, you know, you, you just couldn't, you couldn't mix with just who you felt no. like mixing with. Yeah, it was dangerous. And it was only later when I was helping to run a club with Dave Goldsmith called Lechaim, which where 
a lot of black bands were coming in and playing. Yeah. And Roger Lucy, who I who did the backing vocals from an album, great local artist. Um, you know, they all came in there and that was very uh, kind of, you know, alternative bits of versive and get raided all the time and everything. But yeah. before that, Flibbity Gibbet, we were, you know, we were very much restricted to the places we were allowed to be in and, uh, you know, play music to the people we were allowed to play to. It was very expatish sort of. So you were set. kind of stuck with the expats by default. Yeah. Well, but we did play in Swaziland. We went to, we went to Labatsi and, uh, but we went, you know, Botswana and, you sure. know, a few, few places outside the country, but they were, they were all very, you know, it was all kind of the expat, the Brits and some Irish, you know, basically. Yeah. All of those shows. Yeah. And, you know, but we did it because we, you know, Dave and I wanted to get back into traditional music, particularly. And that's, uh, there's a lot of traditional music in the Flippity Gibbet album, as well as a lot of original stuff. But it's in that idiom. And uh, we really enjoyed, we, we loved that time with, with Barry and Joe, um, the other half of Flippity Gibbet. We had a great time with them. And as I said, I, you know, we're, we're all, we're close still. Barry made my dulcimer, as I mentioned earlier, and yes. they came and visited me a few years ago. And they had a wonderful time in Ireland. We went, we went around a few sessions in Dublin and they, they were, you know, they were invited to play at all of them and they, they really loved it. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I hope they come back again someday. Are they still living in South Africa? Yeah, no, they're living in in Canada. Um, oh, but the thing is that they they're in an area where they they're quite isolated from from music. But recently, I think they were fired up by their experience in Dublin, and recently they've now started writing and performing, and they're doing everything on YouTube. And I thought, and they've got all this better, you know, good equipment and everything. I thought, there you go, you're back in it. Can you see a, a possible um, collaboration again with well, in the I'd, future? Well, I'd love to if we can, if we can maybe do something. You know, it would be something that I would think about maybe in the future. I mean, I haven't yeah. said it to them, but I would certainly not discount it at all because you know why not? <laughs> right. Um, you made a number with David uh, and flipped a gibbet. Hey, I did it. That's that's quite a word. That's quite it's, a mouthful. It's a difficult word. Yeah, it's a difficult word. Uh, made a number of um, appearances on Dutch television uh, when you were in South Africa. Am I correct? Well, that was South African television. Oh. And in fact, we played on a show that there was a huge controversy about it afterwards because we were singing in Afrikaans. That was just prior to Flippity Gibbet with a very experimental dancer called Sylvia Glasser and some South African actors who recited poetry. And, uh, you know, that was very cultural. And it, it, it was just, the, the, the powers that be at the end of it said, this is far too much for the Afrikaans audience. They won't get any of this. And they, they never put it out. And the producer resigned over it, which was a huge shame because oh it, was, it was massively original. It oh, was yeah. The beginning of South African t television. Nobody had done anything like that. Yeah. And then later on, we appeared on some folky things, the Christmas show 
and uh, we did a couple of other performances as Flipperty Gibbet and with a few extra people, a couple of whom are on the Flipperty Gibbet album, who I'm still in touch with as well. Mm. You know, you, you, you keep those people in your life if you can. Absolutely. You know, um, I have a great respect for the South African uh, folk and traditional musicians who um, really a lot of them um, were championed by David Marks, who ran Third Ear. And he really, he, he, he ran a festival every year, still does. And, you know, he championed everyone, us included at the beginning. And mm. I think that people like him are so important. And, uh, you know, thank you very much to them. People like Ted Carroll and David Marks. They, they are the people who keep everything going, you know. Here, here. Uh and and they're behind the scenes. Their their work is never known. I mean, David, David was a musician as well, and he had a big hit with a song called Master Jack in South Africa, and he was able to use that as a platform to do other things. But he yeah. recorded a lot of the people who later became famous in South Africa. You know, yeah. uh, he he was he was behind those scenes long before anyone else right. from the sixties. Well, we thank them and, their, and the work they've done. And because of the apartheid years, none of that music got out to the world. And it's a great shame because some great stuff there. Roger Lucy, John Oakley Smith, Alan Jeffrey, all these people, they were really great musicians in their day. And, you know, their music just didn't get out to the wider world. You mentioned that uh, you learned stagecraft while in South Africa and, and learned a great deal about um, being a stage performer. Can you speak yes, a little because on that? I, 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 well, I was in a show. Um, I was in a couple of reviews there, and they were satirical reviews with yeah. actors and musicians. And uh, they were very successful. We had audiences every night. They were in sort of club venues um, in a place called Rocky Street, which was a really, you know, very happening place in, in Johannesburg. And uh, I was also in a musical um, but I felt, you know, that was just a sideline for me to do. I, you know, I'm, I'm not an actor. I don't have any training and it wouldn't be something that. But I took the stagecraft bit from it. And I thought, well, I can learn to actually use the drama in my performance. And that's how it began, really. Because when I was in Miller Candle doing gigs, you know, Ted Carroll used to say, I look like a fishwife with my hands on my hips. <laughs> and that was it, you know, because I, you know, it was, you know, you were very cool still and, you know sort of nothing phased you. Know, I could imagine. was to be cool. Sure. So you left South Africa. Um, how did you wind up uh, eventually making the decision to return to the UK? Well, you know, I think I always felt that really I couldn't, if I ever was going to have children, I couldn't really bring them up there maybe because the political system. Well. Um, it, it was really, you know, the propaganda and the, and the, the stuff that happened. I mean, Roger Lucy has has made an album all about this, and he was banned for a long time. He was he was basically run out of the country. His career was taken mm. away. He changed careers. He came back years later. It, you know, you couldn't be an artist doing that kind of material. You know, you just couldn't do it. You, you know, your your career would be scuppered in some way by somebody. And uh, you know, I felt that long term. You know, I had to go back to. Uh, well, we went back to, we went to London and, uh, you know, Dave stayed there. Uh, I came Dave back did. with Ian. We'd, we'd parted company by then and, yeah. uh, in 1980. And yeah. uh, I came back in 86 to, to oh. London and stayed there for 
quite a long time till 97 and then went to Belgium. And then uh, my husband Ian was, was kind of posted back with, a, with an, age, an ad agency he was working with. And he was, you know, he was offered job, the job in Dublin. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, this seems like a good idea. And yeah. that's where we, that's where I've been ever since. And, and, you know, I've, I've kind of really got back into the whole thing of being Irish and being away for many years. I've taken those influences, but you know, at heart, I'm an Irish girl. You were involved in a BBC four special uh, entitled family ties. It it was focused on genealogy and uh, your family story was the focus of this episode uh, that I watched. And I'd like to know how that all came about. It was fascinating. It was the story of your grandmother, if I'm not mistaken. And it was very moving. Well, I think I got interested in, in, in because I worked very near where I could get all the birth, marriage and death certificates. And I started up an interest in, in the family tree and genealogy because my baby book, which I still have, had, mm -hmm. you know, a tree for both sides of the family, but there were a whole lot of names missing from, from my grandmother's side. And I asked my mother and she said, I don't know. I don't know who, who those people would be. We never, we never dared to ask, we, you know, so it was intriguing. And when I went to look for my grandmother's birth date, simply nothing under the name that she, you know, it was nothing. And I looked and looked and looked and looked for about a year. And then I found a marriage certificate, which was Several years after I thought it should, you know, she'd had three children by then. And then that whole story of, of the, the two husbands and the two, a double life, which she led, came out in about um, really 1999 and 2000. And I found this, her first family, the descendants, which, and we're all, we're all one family now ever since. You know, Amazing. It's an extraordinary story. She was a singer. She lived in China for a few years. She was married to a man who she thought was American, but he was actually half Chinese, which was a no-no in the in the in the sort of British and American circles in in China in 1915 to 1920. Oh wow! And uh, you know, it was really a no-no. And I think she only found out when she was there and when she was trying to get back in 1919 away from him because he did something I don't know what. We've never been able to find out what. And uh, she was pregnant with her second child and she came back and had the second child. But because she had parted from him, her parents, you know, her father particularly was uh, very disapproving. And, the, you know, she she was in the show business trade at the time. Interesting. Shows, and she had to leave the two children. They were taken into into um, her her father's family. And, yeah. uh, you know, eventually she was ostracized. Oh, and it was a very sad story because she never yes. saw them again after after about 1929. She never yeah. saw them again. And then she came to Ireland um, to escape being found out, I think, because in fact, she really was. She was a bigamist and she yeah. had married. My grandfather didn't know that when he married her. She had her marriage certificate was all mixed up with the the name of her father was half her husband's name and half her father's name and all these facts were sort of it was a whole subterfuge sure. and uh, I found her through a ship's passenger list um, eventually and found out that most of the story but uh, you know it, it's a fascinating story and and they decided to make as there were a series of these um, stories and Mother of Pearl as this was was one of them and uh, so we participated, the, the new family members participated in the, in the story of uncovering 
her story and uh, Nina, her name was, but she, she was an amazing woman. And I don't know how she managed to get through life with that story behind her yeah. and not tell anyone. And yet she was a bit of an iconoclast, maybe not unlike yourself. Yeah. Oh, she was an amazing woman, but, uh, you know, and the more came out about that story, even only a few years ago about the, the husband's uh, father and a whole other story came out that one of my cousins uh, uncovered. So, you know, it seems to be, and we've never found out what happened to him in the end, the, the half Chinese husband. He, he, he went back to China and that was it. Well, huh? he was adopted by a British couple in, in, you yeah. know, in the 19th century, late 19th century. And he, you know, he, he vanished in 1946. He was never heard of again. So he must have died somewhere in China or in Macau or somewhere. Sure. And, uh, you know, when the Japanese came in, I've got goodness knows what happened no. to him. We've never been able to find out. And, you know, you can't ask any questions in China. How about Mellow Candle and current work? What's the link? The link is that I think I always, um, Mellow Candle's always at the back of my mind because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's my original creative work and it's always sits there as a base. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always in the background. It, it, it has informed my later work, although I've gone in many different directions. The originality of it has stayed with me as being an important thing. I feel I must always change and adapt and move with the times. And, you know, it's very important to to keep challenging oneself. And, uh, you know, uh, this album that I'm doing in the traditional idiom, it's, it's a big thing for me because it's really my coming back to our Ireland album. Although I've been back for my 21st year now. It's 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 the album that's going to put me in that whole traditional idiom squarely. I do a lot of yes. traditional singing. I go to the singers' clubs, the Golin, uh, on Golin, which is a very famous singing a traditional singing club here, and I do a lot of traditional singing zooms. And for me, it's important to make an album, but I've written the songs in the tradition, with the big themes of of the day over the last few hundred years. You know, yes, tragedy at sea. Um, betrayal, love, you know, lots of different themes, the, 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 the famine or the great hunger, that's behind an, um, one of the big songs there. And I've written a song about Podrick Pierce, you know, one of the big movers in the Easter Rising. So those songs all are all going to be on that album. And that's going to, that means a lot to me to do this record. 
and the, the name of this latest project will be Hark the Voice That Sings for All. Yeah, new songs in an ancient tradition. Well, I want to um, mention while I have you here um, where we can find your work online. Um, I've got some links here that I'd like to read. And if you have any to add, Allison, please do so at this time. I know you have your own site, which is www.allisonodonnell, and that's A-L-I-S-O-N-O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. And you've got a Bandcamp page as well, and that's allisonodonnell.bandcamp.com. Um, yeah, they're the two main sites where, you know, you can you can see all my work there and listen to all my work free. And people don't have to buy, they can listen. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, various record labels allow me to, uh, everyone except Universal, of course, <laughs> we're allowed to, we're allowed to put up, you know, uh, the, the records we've made, you know, but the, the small independents are much kinder like that. And, you right. know. Right. All my stuff is up there. Some there's a couple of mellow candle tracks that I'm allowed to put up, but nothing from the main album, obviously. Sure. That, yeah, you know, you have to you have to go to the shops for that. You gotta go to the shop. There's loads of streaming content from all of the groups that Allison works with on uh various uh sites um uh, I think you've but, covered nearly all of the people that I you know I think we have it's but m all of this material streams and you can listen to all of these projects online um and there's so much to listen to and um we love you Allison your work is uh it's a glorious thing and it's and it I really appreciate the time you've taken with me today to speak about all of this and it's uh it's been a real pleasure and uh i feel like i've made a friend um absolutely and thank you so much for inviting me because i i'd love to get my work out to a wider audience in america absolutely yeah well you have loads of american fans we're here um but perhaps this will be a good chance for people to get a um you know uh, a reminder to uh take a look and uh, maybe some labels too thanks very much thanks michael Take care. I'll be Should in we touch. Say goodbye now, yeah? Yes, goodbye. Okay, I'll, I'm going to leave now. See you. Charity shops and I need to be thrifty. Flea markets beckon again now I'm 50. Bells we hit bottom spreading their flares. Best of installs calling out Come and go, come and go.
for your really um you know you've really taken on my whole career I really thank you for that interest because it's you know it's made me think about a lot of things and it's it's been really interesting if you like this episode and want to know more about it you can find related links and more at lowprofilepodcast.com previous episodes of this show are also available there and it airs on kaos 89.3 fm in olympia washington fridays at 4 p.m pacific time This episode features Allison O'Donnell, was hosted by Michael Sean Coleman, engineered by Wes Harbison, and produced and edited by me, Mark Lee Morrison. Thanks for listening. Hey, just dropping in to let you know that Low Profile's taking a mid-season break. There's still plenty more episodes to look forward to this season, and beyond that, there's no end in sight. Uh, Just time to chill out for a little bit, if that's cool with y'all. So enjoy the beginning of your summer. And I'll catch you in July.